This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Maria Ristich. She's a regional director of the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network and she's going to be explaining to us what is actually going on on the ground with the protests in Serbia. Now, there's been a lot of lazy reporting, to be honest. The West is kind of saying, oh yeah, these are just coronavirus lockdowns. People are clashing with the police because they don't want to go back into lockdown. That's actually not true. The coronavirus has been kind of used by the increasingly authoritarian government in Serbia to put more control on the people. The police have been incredibly violent. So Maria is going to explain to us this very confusing situation on the ground in Serbia. If you like what we're doing, please help Popular Front keep moving forward. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. Yeah, so as, as I was just saying, like the media in Western Europe and the US are kind of framing these clashes in Serbia as like, oh, it's coronavirus protests. They don't want to be locked down. Now, if you do five minutes research, you see there's a lot more to it. Um, but maybe you can tell us, you know, from your perspective, why is this happening right now? Uh, well, uh, the rise of the COVID cases definitely uh, provoked people to um, go out on the streets and uh, not just the rise, but uh, more the response of the government on the rise of the COVID cases uh, provoked people to go out. But why are they on the streets? Um, it is more related to the overall uh, state of democracy in Serbia. And in general, um, different kind of, I would say, uh, circumstances or events that led to the rise of COVID. Uh, we were the first country that had elections since the pandemic. And uh, during the elections, uh, the government, um, I would say, completely uh, ignored uh, the COVID cases and even did uh, the cover-up of the numbers. So people were told that we defeated COVID, that the COVID uh, cases are quite low, and that is the reason why we have elections. And uh, only after the elections took place, uh, which was on the 21st of uh, June, uh, the government and... Uh, the crisis staff that is in charge of uh, dealing with the COVID pandemic started to saying that the numbers are rising. And then they attempted to impose uh, the lockdown. Obviously, people's reaction was you cannot uh, do this now because the elections uh, are done. Um, so in that sense, I think um, they were quite furious because it shows uh, that uh, the government actually only cares about itself uh, and not about the public health um, as it would be expected. Right. So the government was kind of orchestrating the numbers to fit themselves to be able to control what's going on, essentially. Yes, exactly. So uh, we um, were we had quite, I would say, harsh approach to how to deal with the COVID cases from the beginning. Uh, so the government imposed quite strict lockdown uh, since um, 
March um, and uh, people were in lockdown, for example, for three to four days. Uh, people older than 65 uh, were in complete lockdown. They had only like weekly uh, slots to go outside. Uh, so in that sense, the government initially had this quite, um, I would say, um, uh, strict approach how to deal with the crisis, unlike many European states. So it looked like more like China than, for example, Germany. Um, and then there was a sudden change uh, in uh, the policy towards uh, COVID. Uh, and uh, two weeks before the election, they decided to completely ease down the measures. And that was explained uh, by the fact that the numbers are lower. Uh, and this is the story that they were telling until the elections. So if you look, for example, the chart on um, the COVID cases in Serbia, you would see that in that period, for example, of uh, one week, you had only one person dying every day, which didn't happen anywhere. Um, and in that period, we were starting as a journalist, we were starting to receive um, different kind of warnings from doctors, from patients, different citizens, that the numbers are actually quite uh, different, that they're bigger, uh, and that there is an overall uh, cover-up of um, the numbers. But we couldn't prove that until we actually got access to uh, the state information system where we saw that the number of uh, cases is quite bigger uh, and it's much more bigger than um, the one the government presents. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so then that all kind of blew up when I think last week now, last Sunday maybe, they all, like protesters gathered and they stormed the parliament building, right? Tell us about that, what happened? So yes, I think that first um, uh, protest um, was uh, quite a protest of people who were angry. So uh, it was very spontaneous. It was right after the president of Serbia uh, came out and said that he will impose the lockdown. So people started spontaneously uh, gathering in the center of the city, basically out of rage. And I think this entering the parliament was also for the same reason. So people were quite angry and out of rage. Uh, they wanted uh, to enter the parliament and in a way show uh, this um, issue that they have with the overall system. A lot of people are also calling the demonstration in Serbia as anti-system demonstration. So in a way, the parliament in Serbia always represented uh, this institution that represents the system. When we throw Milosevic in 2000, uh, people initially stormed the parliament building. So it has like this quite symbolic um, uh, thing in our history or in our uh, democracy uh, and people always gather in front of the parliament. So it was in a way um, an attempt to show um, that uh, it's the system that uh, is actually 
um, the one that is responsible for not tackling the COVID crisis uh, responsibly. Right, so it wasn't like just a normal thing. That was quite a big deal, the fact that the parliament got um, got stormed, like it's symbolic. Yes, exactly. So uh, in, 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 as I said, in Serbian political culture, storming the parliament, uh, meaning that you are against uh, the system and that you want the system uh, to be changed. So in a way, it's some kind of message. Um, and that actually resonates um, from 2000 much more, like after uh, Milosevic uh, fell down. But the, the storming of the parliament was not um successful and uh, they tried to do it um the two days after as well but um there were a lot of police and um it was actually at the end prevented yeah well they they got in a little bit right there is some footage of them actually inside but quite quickly they were out yeah, so the first day they managed to enter and they stayed there, I think it was 5 to 10, maybe 15 minutes. And then uh, the police forces uh, actually forced them out of um, the parliament building. Right, and then the next night, the police from the videos that I've seen and friends I have there that I'm talking to, you know, who are amongst the protests and whatever, said that, like, you know, the police came down extremely heavy on them. Yes, so uh, even on the first day of demonstration, but especially on the second day, uh, police used excessive force uh, in many cases. Uh, we as a journalist documented at least 26 cases where we had um, footage which shows uh, that the police used excessive force um, towards uh, protesters. Uh, and in general, they were using quite a lot of tear gas um, in the first three days. Uh, beyond tear gas, they were using a lot of violence, beating uh, of people. There were a lot of police in civilian clothes. Um, in that sense, uh, also violating uh, human rights conventions uh, because people didn't have an idea that next to them is a police officer or not. Then they were basically caught in parks, uh, on benches, uh, on streets. Uh, a lot of them got arrested um, as well. The state still claims uh, that the police acted in line with the law. Uh, which is also um, quite problematic. And we had uh, a lot of organizations, both internally, but also internationally, uh, from Amnesty International to uh, Council of uh, Europe and uh, Commissioner for Human Rights, who said that basically um, the force that the police used was quite excessive and that there needs to be an independent investigation uh, into this. Yeah, I mean, the videos are brutal. There's one specifically where there's, I don't know, there's about five police come around a guy who's already on the ground, just start battering him with, with like truncheons and they move along and then the next load come and beat him and then the next load come and just move him out the road. Like, and then there's, you know, footage where the guys are sitting down having a drink on a bench, they just get smashed around their head. Like, it seems like the police have been told to be, you know, basically to like fuck everybody up. Do you think that's, that's the case? Like the government has kind of said, yeah, go in heavy. Definitely, I think uh, Serbian police has a historical issue with using um, uh, 
a lot of force or unnecessary force or right, yeah. force. Uh, so in that sense, uh, Serbian police has always been brutal. So in that sense, the uh, the Serbian state uh, never developed um, police that has a democratic culture, so to say. So uh, in Serbia, police is always sent uh, to do very nasty things for the state. Um, and it is often perceived like it is a force above the law. Uh, and looking, for example, into the period before 25 years when there was a war, uh, police was always uh, sent to do dirty business. After the war, there was never a proper, proper reform of the police because police was always too powerful. Um, and uh, no one actually dared uh, to so to say uh, tackle this issue of overall impunity of the police. So now you have this uh, mix of generations. So you have this old generation that took part in the war uh, and that stayed in the police and is uh, in a way uh, aware of this um, so to say, inability of the state to um, tackle any kind of issues within the police. And then you have the new generation, uh, which also has quite dodgy uh, record. In a way, you have people who take uh, part as hooligans um, in the games or um, people who are part of different kind of organized crime rings. So it's uh, it was always a very... Uh, so to say, dodgy institution that had its own rules, how uh, it operates. And I think this clearly showed this. Um, and I can bet 100% that none of the police officers uh, will ever uh, be prosecuted for this, like they never have been prosecuted for any of misdeeds uh, they did uh, in the past. So in a way, uh, I, I would say that for sure they got a green light from the government, but it's also uh, internal uh, issue how the police perceives themselves and what's their role. Right, like it's already normal for them to do that. It's not like they stepped it up. Exactly. I mean, uh, there are for sure people within the police who would consider some things unethical or problem problematic. But I'm speaking uh, about like this overall morale and ethic of the police where you where the majority actually uh, goes out at the street and beats the citizens for no reason, simply because they think this is the way how things should be done. Yeah. The police, the um, I've seen like first of all, uh, you know, some people were saying already like day two they were like, oh, there are undercovers, there are instigators, and you know, as you know better than I do, any kind of protest in the Balkans, there's always that rumor, right? There's instigators, there's state instigators, but when I looked at some of the footage, it seems like that's actually true, right? There, there seems to be like. I mean, I don't know if they're police or what, but people working with the police who are not dressed up as police kind of throwing stuff, running into things, and then before you know it, they're helping the police arrest people. Like, I mean, what is all that about? Yeah, as you said, we saw a lot of uh, people who seemed in a way affiliated with the police, but we couldn't really figure out who they are. And I think um, 
one of the reasons uh, for that is simply because our police is quite connected with the, so to say, underground. So uh, the police um, in general has quite close uh, relations, so to say, with um, the hooligans that I mentioned who are uh, running different kind of football fan clubs mm. who have uh, very controversial uh, past. A, a lot of them are like fascist ultras, right? Exactly. So some of them uh, are, uh, as you said, fascist, uh, far right. Some of them are also like criminal. They do organized crime things, mm. drugs, uh, smuggling of different things, uh, etc. So um, in that sense, the, the police already has this group of people working for them who have very troubling personalities. Then in general, I think the other issue is that the Serbian society is also, uh, as a society, is a society that has a lot of uh, far-right groups. So it's in a way uh, more orthodox than uh, any uh, other around it, so to say. Um, so a lot of far-right groups are normalized. And these far-right groups... Uh, often cause violence and often have very troubling means of, uh, so to say, um, having their goals uh, met. And they have not been ever held accountable for any of that. So for them, it's completely normal to throw stones, uh, to... Uh, rob things, uh, to attack people offline, online. So I think uh, with this protest, you had a merge of everything. So everyone came with a different idea about protest and different goals about protest. Uh, and I think this protest actually showed like this deep divisions and polarizations within Serbia. Yeah, I was talking to a friend who said that, like, every group possible is there. Like, there, there's also footage as well of, like, young students throwing bottles at, like, the fascists that turn up. Because they're like, we don't want you here. And then the fascists are fighting with other people. Then there's some on the side of the police. Like, wh who would you say is the main, I don't know, maybe there is not a dominant group. But, like, generally, would you say that there's specifically a group of people there that are kind of trying to push it forward? Because right now it seems a little bit directionless. Yes, I think it's uh, it was direction. It, it didn't have direction from the beginning. Mm. What uh, brought them together was this outrage. So all of them first night felt uh, an extreme outrage uh, towards uh, the government and how it is in general uh, handling the country and how where the country is going, uh, etc. Uh, then, um, and you there you had people who are liberals, you had people who are uh, on the right spectrum, you had people who are confused, uh, you had uh, also leftists, um, then you had uh, different, basically, everyone who in a way felt some kind of disinfection, uh, disinfection, dissatisfaction, they were coming to the protest. Then on the second night, you saw more prominence of these far-right groups who wanted basically to use the momentum of uh, the overall disinfection to uh, dissatisfaction to actually 
bring more people of their alliance, so to say, to the protest. Through violence, through attacking the police, attracting more young people, etc. This then led these people who have moderate stances not to take part anymore uh, in the protest. And then that led us to the issue that we have with the protest in Serbia, not just now, but I think in the period of the last two to three years. And that is basically that uh, there is no one who uh, can generate this um, outrage of the citizens with the current system, simply because there is no uh, leadership among the opposition movement. So you don't have um, clear vision among those who oppose to Vucic, what could be the step or what could be the steps uh, that need to be taken in order to overthrow the government. So everyone right. has different reasons why they hate the government, but they cannot uh, basically have this uniting force that can lead them to a change. So some would say, I don't want to go with this person because he's far right. Other would say, I don't want to go with this person because he's corrupted. The third would say, I'm leftist, I want someone who represents left ideas. So uh, it's very fragmented society and there is no one in the opposition, neither like among the official opposition parties, but also among the citizens movement, who would be this unique figure uh, that would gather maybe a larger group of people around some kind of goals. Right. Um, well, let's talk about Vuvic then. I, I saw he's been in power, right, since what, two, 2014 more or less, and he's now becoming like increasingly authoritarian, right? C can you talk about him and, and everything they're up to? Because obviously they've made a lot of people angry. Yes, yeah, so Vucic is uh, in power, yeah, as you said, um, I think in different roles uh, in the country from 2012. Mm his party, actually, to be precise. Right. Uh, and uh, he is now uh, the president of Serbia, uh, but also the president of his party. His ruling party, Serbian Progressive Party, um, won at the elections uh, more than 60%. Uh, so uh, they are uh, more than a majority, so to say. Uh, and uh, they are officially and unofficially, however you want to call it, uh, control it all levels of power uh, in Serbia. Uh, and they control almost every element of the state uh, because we don't really have uh, free judiciary, free media. So everything more or less is under control of uh, Serbian progressive uh, party. And uh, Vucic had these authoritarian tendencies uh, from the beginning. So he was always an authoritarian leader. He also has a very authoritarian past. Uh, he was uh, affiliated with the war criminal who was convicted by the ICTY uh, for the war uh, in Serbia and Croatia. Uh, but uh, now uh, his grip on power is just huge. So, like five years ago, you had some elements uh, that were uh, clearly independent. You had sort of independent institutions, but in his course of uh, ruling in the last five years, he managed to destroy every independent 
voice in the country. And you clearly see that uh, in these elections where you basically didn't have any kind of opposition entering the parliament. So it's more or less uh, one party state. Uh, not fully, but it has uh, all elements. So the police is controlled by um, Vucic, uh, every independent institution like Agency for Corruption, uh, for anti-corruption is controlled by the government. Uh, most of the mainstream media are either government-funded or government-controlled. Uh, judiciary is quite weak, so there are no big cases. Uh, judges and prosecutors don't dare um, to rule independently. Um, and yeah, parliament we don't have. Uh, it's mostly uh, out of uh, the Serbian Progressive Party. So in a way, it looks like um, it's moving towards uh, Russia uh, in terms of political system or Turkey. Wow. Okay. So it's it's becoming like a dictatorship by default, essentially. Exactly. Uh, and I mean, the reasons for that are one is, of course, uh, that Vucic is very pragmatic leader uh, and uh, he controls a lot of uh, the elements of the state, but it's also that the opposition op is almost non-existent. So um, the people who would confront Vucic, uh, they absolutely don't have support uh, among the people because the people don't recognize them as uh, genuine uh, opposition force of the current government. The thing is, though, what I can't quite work out is like he obviously has a lot of support, but then there are also these protests which are pretty big. Yes, but uh, the yeah, uh, that's that's um, quite um, in a way difficult and easy to explain. So uh, Vucic generates a lot of support across Serbia. And we always like to say in Belgrade that Belgrade is not Serbia. Belgrade was always uh, con considered to be the most liberal. Uh, it was always uh, the city that had um, big uh, sort of um, critical mass, so to say. Um, and it was always uh, different. So if you look at Belgrade, uh, you would think that a lot of people are opposing Vucic simply because you have protests, people are unhappy. Uh, you would also, like if you uh, are on social media, you would see that there are a lot of people who are seen in a way as quite critical to the government. But after, I mean, outside of Belgrade, there is very uh, limited um, opposition to anything that Vucic uh, is doing. And Serbia, in that sense, is quite a big country and a lot of Vucic voters live outside of Belgrade. Why they vote for Vucic is simply because uh, they are, uh, so to say, victims of his uh, propaganda. So people outside of Belgrade don't have access to free media. Um, they don't have access to multiple sources that will inform them about uh, the government uh, corruption, and uh, they only get information from uh, these local media outlets that in most of the cases are heavily government uh, controlled. So their access to information is quite poor. Um, and in general, I mean, political culture in Serbia is uh, quite poor itself. 
uh, and this uh, perception of democratic participation, um, a culture of critical thinking, it's also not on a great level. So in that sense, it's quite easy to, so to say, control the masses. I mean, this is, and this is not something that Vucic invented. Uh, if you look at like history of Serbia, you would see that we had quite authoritarian leaders in the past as well. We had Tito for many years. After that, there was Slobodan Milosevic. Then we have a brief period of democratic transition, but still strong personalities. Uh, and after that, uh, it was Vucic. So in a way, it's very, very difficult to change uh, this perception among people that there is a leader who will save us. And in this case, the only leader that appears is Vucic. Um, so as I said, I mean, if you look if for people who follow uh, Russia and Turkey, it's quite similar. Like how people, for example, uh, outside of Moscow perceive Putin or uh, how people outside of Istanbul perceive Erdogan. Um, and it's it's very similar. Yeah, no, it sounds like it, definitely. It's kind of the new technique of these, you know, wannabe dictators that know that they can't go in with the hard boot as firm as perhaps they could have. So it's, you know, they slide into it. It sounds like that's what he's done. Exactly. And it's also, um, uh, the other thing is that um, uh, their leadership lasts long. So it's years mm. and years working on building a system that works in favor of one party. So Vucic didn't do this uh, like in two years. So he was doing this in course of an eight years. Um, so, and he's also very pragmatic and very smart. Um, and in that sense, he made the system working in favor of him and his party. Right. Yeah. And what is the uh, what is his you know the government media? What have they actually been saying about the protesters? Most of the government media were saying that um, the protests are organized by far right groups. That is one narrative. Um, the other narrative is uh, that uh, there is a foreign factor. Um, some people say it's Russia, some people say it's neighboring countries, probably thinking of Montenegro, because Montenegro and Serbia are currently not uh, in so good uh, relation. Uh, and uh, that the overall attempt is uh, to overthrow uh, Vucic and to turn country into the chaos. Uh, so this is what uh, the... Um, most of the pro-government media are saying. Uh, also, a lot of them are in general ignoring the protests. Uh, for example, the Serbian public broadcaster uh, didn't have anything on protests um, on the first day. Uh, only on the second day, uh, they had uh, limited coverage, third day as well. So it's a mix of uh, denial and propaganda. Right, to be expected. Um, maybe you can talk a bit about the uh, the authoritarianism that we've seen within the protests. I've seen in the last what like couple of days that you know protesters have gone from getting beaten around the head to kind of disappearing. Like people are getting locked up for thirty days for just holding up a sign. There are some people are just saying they don't know where their friends are. Like what's going on? So yes, we actually also don't know how many people are for real arrested and how many people are detained and what under which rules or laws and regulations 
the police uh, did this. So um, this links to, to my previous answer, uh, and that is that uh, the police is basically not run uh, by any rules of transparency in general. Uh, and I know as a journalist, if you want to find out anything that is related to the police, you either have to have a very good source within the police who wants to tell you things, or you will never find out, or you will find out in the course of 30 to 40 days. Um, and in that sense, uh, the police response uh, also was quite uh, depending on case by case. So um, in some cases, they will decide uh, to lock someone for 30 days. In some cases, they would decide on the spot to release uh, someone. So uh, it's quite um, arbitrary. And uh, there are no sanctions for anything uh, that they have been doing. And to get any kind of information is quite difficult. For example, this morning, I saw uh, a post about uh, a person who was working as uh, a researcher at the um, uh, State Institute for uh, Philosophy, uh, who was arrested uh, at the protests as uh, like disruptor and foreign uh, influence, uh, etc., and ordered uh, custody of uh, 30 days. So um, a lot of uh, independent people were protesting against that, uh, calling the police uh, to issue some kind of statement, but still like we don't have any kind of uh, information. On the other side, the government fully stand behind uh, what the police has been doing. The government said that the police didn't use any excessive force, that uh, they were responding to the growing uh, violence and that their response was legitimate. So in a way, police, there is no one who at this point will force anyone from the police forces to come out and give uh, the exact data. I mean, I know that human rights organizations are preparing lawsuits, but considering that our judiciary is quite slow and uh, it's quite also controlled and political. Uh, it will take like years uh, to get any kind of uh, response from the judiciary. And then, I mean, in two or three years, I think it would be already um, quite late uh, to respond uh, to any of the violations. Yeah, exactly. And the government could then just say, like, so what? Do you know what I mean? The amount of power they have now already, it's just going to get more, I reckon. Um, where do you think these protests are heading? You know, like each day it seems to be getting more disorganized, but there are still quite high levels of violence and there are still people coming out. What do you think is going to happen? We will for sure know more what will happen this week, uh, because I think this will, week will be quite crucial for... Uh, protests in order to see whether they will continue or not. Um, we had less people during weekend, but mostly because we had quite high violence um, on Friday. Uh, so I think a lot of people were scared. And in a way, the protests were hijacked by these far-right um, groups. Um, so uh, I think the biggest... Um, 
I would say, uh, sign uh, will be how many people we will see on Monday, Tuesday. And I think uh, if these protests then generate uh, more people, then we could see uh, that the protests will continue or they will grow. Uh, but um, these protests um, reasonably may have the fate of the protests from last year. Uh, because we also had anti-government protests uh, last year. Uh, they were called one of uh, five million, mm. uh, that they were also against the government, but these protests also didn't have any kind of leadership. So they were also quite uh, locally driven at the beginning. Um, and at one point, opposition parties joined the protest and in a way hijacked the protest. And as opposition parties joined the protest, then uh, the whole movement itself started to collapse and people were simply not interested enough uh, to take part in it. So um, in a way, I think it's at once, it, on one side, it's great that the citizens are the ones who are initiating the protests. But on the other hand, it's quite sad that this protest actually never lead to any kind of change simply because there is no leadership and vision uh, behind it. And you cannot run protests uh, like days and days without clear strategy or idea where is this heading and how things will be achieved. Uh, and this is, I think, the, the biggest struggle now uh, with, the, with this protest. But also, I think, uh, similar things even if this stops uh, this week, um, it is a question what will be in the fall. Uh, because there, I think more and more people will realize that uh, the economy is quite poor and there will be quite a lot of consequences of COVID in terms of unemployment and uh, other forms of dissatisfaction. So I'm sure that at one point in the near future, uh, this uh, sort of citizen disobedience will continue. In which form, it's quite really difficult to, to predict. Yeah, I think as well, I, I agree. Like, um, But also I do think that like the government is going to come down harder because I was reading that... Um, They've got like, they've been buying drones from China. They've been buying all this kind of spy stuff from China. Like it doesn't look good. Yeah, so um, I always uh, sometimes uh, half, um, half joke, but half serious. Um, I was often referring to, uh, to Serbia as a surveillance state. Why surveillance state? Simply um, because it's a post-communist country. So we were for a long time, uh, as surveillance states for real. Um, during communism, in a way, uh, taping someone was quite a legit business, uh, as in every communist state. Uh, and the government and the police uh, and the citizens, they were all working um, into this surveillance concept to trying to beat the enemy. As in Albania, as in uh, East Germany, uh, as elsewhere where the communism won, uh, was. And then um, during Milosevic time, we also had quite heavy surveillance states. So Milosevic uh, was also a former communist and he kept 
some of the elements of uh, communism and surveillance was uh, one of it. Uh, and then uh, this simply continued um, during uh, democratic uh, transition, so to say. Now this surveillance is just upgraded in a sense that you have modern technology uh, to do it. Uh, and uh, you're probably referring to the fact that Serbia bought um, this surveillance system from China, mm. Huawei, um, on public cameras and facial recognition. Uh, and yeah. the issue we have with that uh, is that simply that whole process is not transparent. So how Serbia did this, they signed a memorandum of understanding with China. Uh, and through this memorandum, uh, they basically got uh, the equipment. Um, and because it's a business deal, uh, it's not, uh, they don't require to um, have it open for the public. So we don't know how many cameras, how much money, uh, what is the technology. Uh, so we are only assuming things around it, which then leads us to uh, the thing that we are, of course, suspectful of what is the aim of this uh, surveillance system. And we know how surveillance system uh, work, not just in China, but also in other countries of Europe, um, where it can easily uh, be abused for, uh, by the government for, uh, for violation of uh, basic rights. Well, it's the same with the weapons, right? Like I read here they, got, they bought weapons from China, Russia and France. And a lad I was talking to basically said that, like, those weapons have trickled down to the police. And there's, you know, like how in America, like, there's a very kind of, like, militarization of the police. People are saying that's happening in Serbia as well. It's not just that they're brutal. They're getting, like, you know, military-grade equipment almost. Uh, I don't know in details about uh, how much of the uh, equipment, but definitely um, the Serbian uh, police and army are getting a lot of equipment from... Uh, Russia uh, traditionally, uh, then also now um, from uh, China. Um, and in overall, um, I would say that Serbian police is quite militarized already. Mm. It's just that they didn't have an opportunity so much until now to use this weapon on Serbian citizens. So we used it heavily during the 90s. For example, Kosovo War, that was 70% is police. Uh, war crimes and everything that happened around Kosovo, uh, it is mostly done by the police and special police unit. After that, um, they were not so much using um, violence uh, on citizens, direct violence, but they were definitely an abusive system. So a lot of people were abused by police, but I would say more on this uh, general level, not so much in terms of arms and uh, military force uh, that they had. But obviously, I mean, we now see uh, that they can use uh, force as well uh, if there is uh, a need. But also, I mean, Serbia itself is a big producer of arms. Uh, we don't need necessarily to import anything from China or Russia. We produce it uh, as well um, 
So in that sense, I wouldn't worry about them getting weapons and and arms uh, from anywhere. Right, they've already got them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, A lot of people have been messaging me about this and saying, is there going to be a war in Serbia? And I'm like, no, like, calm down, relax. However, the one thing that I do find interesting is that, like, the Balkans is getting very unstable. So there's these clashes in Serbia. There's a thing in Bulgaria the other day. Like, Kosovo has basically had, like, a kind of a soft coup. I don't know, like, everything feels a little bit unstable. As someone that covers that area, what do you think? Do you think that's right, or is it just, you know, typical Western Europe just thinking everything's bad in the Balkans? (laughs) Yeah, uh, so, (laughs) yeah, true. Um, But uh, I think, yeah, it uh, definitely is not stable. Uh, But I I don't like to use the word stable for that same reason, because, uh, yeah, uh, what's the issue with the West is that they often try to get stability for and then they sacrifice everything. And I think this is the split. So the Europe often always wanted uh, Western Balkans to be secure. Uh, and then they undermined uh, rule of law and democracy for the sake of security. And they were trading this with uh, our authoritarian leaders. And now the authoritarian leaders, not just in Serbia, but as you mentioned, in Kosovo, uh, in Montenegro, um, partially in Bosnia, uh, Bulgaria as well, they realized uh, that they're way too powerful and that they don't necessarily need uh, European Union to tell them what is good or bad for their country. Um, And I think this is, in a way, a response to this uh, policy. Western Balkans was never, um, so to say, peaceful area because there were a lot of uh, issues after the conflict that were not tackled. So, in a way, it was always in some sort of a transition into the post-conflict society and into the democracy. But this transition never fully, uh, how to say, yeah, it was never fully implemented. And we uh, had uh, this uh, authoritarian tendencies that were building up, plus uh, the um, different economic hardships, um, then um, different circumstances, For example, uh, a lot of people are poor, they cannot travel, uh, there is a low level of um, employment. So different factors um, influencing uh, the people and in general uh, their way of living. So a lot of people are now just want to leave the Balkans. Uh, A lot of them also left. Western Europe and the one that stayed are quite uh, unhappy and in a way I think the things are boiling because people don't see that things are moving forward you know I remember like five or six years ago or ten years ago people would say okay uh, like in five years we will join European Union so all this sacrifice is worth it so they were in a way waiting 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 for something good to happen And you have this transition that lasts for 20 years and you don't see uh, this bright future. So in a way, people, a lot, a lot of them feel like hopeless Um, because, yeah, European Union is in crisis itself. Then 
there is a lot of uh, different players uh, in the region, uh, Russia, uh, Turkey, um, Saudi Arabia uh, as well, who are in a way luring people more towards them. So all societies, I think, are quite uh, divided. So in that sense, I, I don't think it will be war. Uh, but definitely civil unrests. And mm -hmm. I, I'm 100% sure for Kosovo, for example, that we can see uh, something like that, especially with the new war crimes court uh, yeah. in the Hague, um, how the government was basically removed from power, was a sort of a coup. Uh, then uh, Montenegro as well. There we have a person who is ruling that country for almost 30 years. And opposition doesn't see any way uh, to enter the political life except through violence. Bosnia, I think it's, it's actually it's embarrassing to say, but it's like divided country since the war. Uh, and there is no like willingness uh, either from inside or outside to change this. Um, so in that sense, I think it, it will be definitely unstable, um, but uh, war, I really doubt it. There is no, um, there is no arms first <laughs> to do it, but there is also, I think for a war to happen, leaders would need to be ready to do it. And for now, I don't think that any of the leaders of the Western Balkans would go into the war simply because they find the situation perfect for them. They can be authoritarian, they can stay in power and live in peace. Sure, but I meant in terms of war, I just meant like the people, you know what I mean? Like my, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen either, but like if it did, I would see it something like that, right? Like militias, people just go, right, the only way is boom, like militias or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, exactly. But um, I don't, uh, for me, uh, what you say, the war, for me, that's civil arrest, uh, unrest. That for sure. Protest, uh, violence, um, yes, uh, definitely. Um, but also, I think for many people in the Balkans, the war uh, was not so long ago. Uh, yeah. So in that sense, we also have to think about that, um, that a lot of people lived through war, and for them, that's the true horror. Uh, and I think a lot of people fear of that. Um, so in that sense, this is in a way a prevention factor uh, for many of these unrests to develop into a real conflict. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, surely Russia is kind of loving all this right now. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> Russia, uh, Russia was always in the region. That's what I often when people because a lot of people like to ask this. Um, Russian influence, etc., thinking that Russia is uh, bringing some extra propaganda to the region. But it's not, uh, simply because Russia was always present in the region. Um, when I say always, I mean historically present. Mm -hmm. So they were there through uh, World War One, World War Two, Balkan Wars as well, the first uh, Balkan Wars. Um, and uh, they were quite a player since forever. Um, 
and uh, they always had friends in the Balkans and they always had enemies in the Balkans. And with friends, it was all friends, so to say, it was always easy to manipulate them. And I often like to say for Serbia that Serbia has this um, special love affair with Russia, which means uh, that Serbs uh, love Russians simply as their brothers so it's not a rational relationship it's something that you have emotion towards something for some reason but you don't need to necessarily rationalize it this is how if you would ask random people in serbia what do they think of russia they would tell this is uh these are our orthodox brothers we have been together through the history um and they're on our side always yeah when um when i went to the uh the serbian side in mitrovica there was like the first thing you see is like a 50 foot poster of putin hanging off of like a, a block of flats like, and there's just russian flags everywhere like it's more like fanatic rather than yeah logical like you said like a football team yes and also it's the same um thing that I was explaining previously that uh, in general um, people here always liked authoritarian leaders. So we always had someone who uh, was perceived as the ruler of everything. It, uh, usually the power was always one person. So in that sense Putin is seen as someone who is very powerful, who confronts the West, uh, and this is the narrative that has been feeding in Serbia like for years. Right, the strong man. Exactly, yeah. It's a patriarchal society in a way, uh, still. Um, and, you know, Putin uh, with, um, you know, in Serbia it's quite popular, uh, his uh, pictures where he is half naked. <laughs> yeah, riding a horse. Exactly, because this is like a typical Balkan man as well. Uh, this warrior uh, that um, is uh, going through diff difficult situations, but at the end he wins because he's strong and wise. I mean, you know, I'm laughing about it there and it is kind of comical, but it's all very well like, you know, Western European guy laughing at it, but it's working, right? It's working over there. Yeah, exactly. But it, it is working because this is the narrative that uh, everyone is feeding. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, okay, before I let you go, is there anything else uh, you think we should mention that we haven't yet? I think we covered a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting. That's exactly what I needed because I was trying to research and uh, talking to so many people. And, and what I will say is like the people from Serbia have been so helpful, like messaging me. But like you've been saying, everyone has a different reason why this is happening or or at least a different like angle on the protest. So it's been quite confusing, you know. Exactly. It's also confusing for us. But, yeah, but this was a nice discussion, quite different than the usual one. Where can people get hold of you if they want to follow your work on Twitter or wherever? Yeah, on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Marian R. So Marian underscore R, right? M-A-R-I-E-N underscore R. Okay, thank you very much, Maria. That's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Maria Ristic talking about the clashes in Serbia and the very complex situation that's unfolding there on the ground still. Last night there were clashes, things are kind of winding down but from what people have said to me on the ground everyone is still very angry and this could just be the start of something much bigger. 
If you like what we're doing at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon. We are 100% independent. We do not take money from corporate backers, even though they're sniffing around these days. Fuck that. So go to patreon.com slash popular front. There are bonus episodes. There is access to the community discord. You get episodes before the people. Um, there's also a new thing that we're starting soon. It's kind of tongue in cheek, the title is, but the thing is serious. So it's called Too Cool for J School. J School being uh, journalism school. And what we're doing is we're kind of going to do like a video series kind of uh, teaching people basics of conflict journalism things you might want to know if you're in a protest things you might want to know if you somehow end up on a front line like what plates do you need how can you help yourself not get wrecked by tear gas uh, good books that might help you you know educate yourself on various conflicts all around the world so yeah there's going to be a few of us doing it i think it'll be cool um, i'm going to introduce that in about two weeks it will be patreon exclusive patreon only so yeah patreon.com slash popular front if you want to support us in a different way you can go to popularfront.co like counter offensive co uh slash support popularfront.co slash support you can do it on bitcoin donations all sorts of stuff uh and you know if you are an independent business and you know you're not treating your workers badly and everything is ethical um and you think that you know what you do might work with popular front and you want to shout let us know uh, email me jake at hanrahan.tv h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n we're very cheap considering the amount of uh, people are listening to us we're not trying to fuck anybody over but we are trying to keep moving forward and making better stuff so yeah uh sponsors in this episode were oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa check them out they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 tell them popular front sent you also uh grind core house a pair of coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in the south one in the west check them out on social media at grind core house this episode is also sponsored by uh, Reaper Feed. It's basically a site reporting on the kind of unusual sides of human conflict from the favorite wristwatch of terrorists to interviews with warlords. Check them out at reaperfeed.com or on Instagram and Twitter at reaperfeed1. If you want to follow us on social medias, go to instagram.com slash popular.front twitter.com slash popular c popular front co uh, youtube youtube.com slash popular front the um capitol hill occupied protest doc will be out by the weekend um so yeah go there or if you want just go to popularfront.tv we'll take you to the same place um, the website, everything there, popularfront.co and you know there are articles on the website but from now on, now that we've started the zine, all articles will just be in the zine in the physical form, there will not be an online form, a lot of people are not happy about that but you know, that's how it is, it's kind of an experiment I guess, you know, I think that there's a lot of um, currency in physical media still and it's nice to actually hold the product in your hand and why not pay for it and have it and read the articles rather than just read it off the screen, like I hate doing that myself so we're only doing the articles now in the zine um, and it looks a lot nicer you collect it whatever 
The first issue of the zine is completely sold out. Please stop asking me to do reruns of it. We already did one rerun and I'm still in my house packing them. Like, I can't do it. So the next issue will be out uh, at the end of August. Got a lot of good people working on that. So just keep your eyes open for it. And when it does go on sale, like, grab it. Because I did give people, like, five weeks pre-orders and then an extra week pre-order. And people are still saying, oh, I missed it. Well, there, sorry. Like, that's how it is. Um, if you want to keep your eye on the zine stuff, probably best to do it on the Instagram, instagram.com slash popular.front. Um, thank you to the following high tier Patreons. They are uh, Ian Fruis, James Cully, Michael Ackerman, Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Chandler Malin, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Maxwell Burke, BR underscore EN86, The Robot, Anthony Kubarik, Don Wayne, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Sebastian from the Discord, Degenerate Alpha, uh, Degenerate Zero Alpha, sorry, <laughs> get them names in the right order, Chris Davis, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Prashant Singh, Azad, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Christina Rivetti, Josh from the Discord, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Emiliano, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Sarusha Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, Skatoon Music, Stephen Davila, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, uh, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did. Emily, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson from Iceland, Christopher Martin, uh, Ryan Sandercock, Daniel Shearer and Joanna Stocker. Thank you all very much. Um, without your help, you know, this would all definitely fall apart very quick. So thank you. Again, if you want to support us, get loads of extra content, go to patreon.com slash popular front. I really don't see it as like, oh yeah, you're giving them money to keep moving forward as charity. It's basically a subscription service because we put so much extra content out there. So yeah, I mean, it's subscribe, I would say. Subscribe on the Patreon, patreon.com slash popularfront. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, aka Son of Old. Check his music at samblackpf.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah.